card had been returned and added to it was this cryptic message, Genesis 3.10. Reaching for his Bible to check out the verse, he broke up into laughter because Revelation 3.20 begins, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. To which Genesis 3.10 replies, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid, for I was naked. I like that. I like that. You know, there's a, the point is that this story, in a humorous way, illustrates the importance of knowing Scripture. You know, for those who have not been born again, the Bible was confusing at best and impossible to understand. You know, I vividly recall a time in my life when I believed the Bible to be nothing more than a collection of stories on the, on the level of, uh, you know, just fairy tales or things that we had heard about, or you just, but there's no, there was no relevance to it. And at most, you know, considered to be just the, just the other opinions of men. You know, just the opinions of men with no divine authority. You know, then the day came when I recognized my sinfulness and my need of God's forgiveness. And it was by God's grace through faith that uh, I trusted in Jesus Christ, his death on the cross and the power of his resurrection on my behalf. And as a result, the Bible became clear to me. And I began to understand through the indwelling of the Spirit of God who is given to all who trust in Christ, who guides us into all truth and teaches us. As I began to read the Bible, I couldn't get enough of it. You know, it, it made sense. There was, there, it was relevant. It was practical. It was pertinent to everyday living in every area of life. As we talked about, it's, you know, whether it's in our family life, in our relationship as husband and wife and with our children, in our businesses and finances, in every area of life, there was, there was, there was truth and there was relevance. And, uh, and, I, you know, and as a result, I began to understand that, you know what, the Bible is indeed the very Word of God in written form, and we're we'll talk more about that as we proceed this morning. But today, we're going to continue our series of messages that focus on the events leading up to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, to date, we've examined a remarkable series of events, when you think about it, that occurred as Jesus and his disciples traveled towards Jerusalem uh, to celebrate the Passover feast. We read that near Jericho, he was approached by a rich young ruler who asked him basically, God, what do I, you know, Jesus, what do I got to do to get into the kingdom of God? What do I got to do to be right with God? And Jesus, knowing this young man's heart, knowing that he was a man who had many possessions and understanding how he was in love with money and not love with God because the greatest commandments, you love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. So no matter what he told you, you would be willing to do if you indeed love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. He said, listen, you know what? Sell everything. And give that money to the poor and come and follow me. And the young man turned and walked away. The Bible tells us because he was a man of many possessions. And he wasn't willing to do what was required to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. We also saw him open the eyes of a blind beggar and forgive the sins of a tax gatherer, Zacchaeus. We saw him present himself as Messiah as he was exalted by the multitudes which our children's choir sang about this morning and that is the, the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ, his presentation to, to the Jews as the king of the Jews in fulfillment of scripture. The multitudes while he was riding into Jerusalem laid down their coats and laid down palm branches and waved them and shouted out salvation has come from above. And then there was a change in, in, in momentum. You know, he was betrayed and he was arrested. He was abandoned by his own and he was put on trial, yet he was found not guilty by those who tried him. Both Herod and Pilate said, in him I find no fault. This man's guilty of nothing. 
And all of this was taking place in an environment where there were others who were watching. And we'll see and we'll be introduced to some others who were on the court docket that day as well, who heard the testimony and sat in silence as they listened to what was being said and the pronouncement of, we find no fault in this man. And yet at the same time, he was turned over to the religious leaders who demanded that he be crucified. And today, as we continue on this road to resurrection and the Easter message next week, we'll examine the most powerful of all subjects, and that is the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. I want to look at the, the gospel account that's found in the book of Luke, as well as some parallel accounts in other gospels. And there are seven things that we'll observe, but first let's read the account that's found in Luke chapter 23, verses 20 through 43. We'll concentrate on that particular section. And again, there's notes available for you in your bulletin if you want to follow along or just to make some notes of your own. And maybe even more importantly, some action steps because we're told that we're to be not only hearers of the word of God but doers as well. And I always like when I take notes to write down as God impresses on me, Chuck, this is what you need to do. Do it. You know, just write it down. I'm going to do this. When I leave here today, I'm going to start now. I'm going to do this, which God is telling me to do, and I'm going to be obedient to what I'm hearing. But in Luke chapter 23 and verse 20, we start off with, it says, And in Pilate, wanting to release him, as I mentioned, Pilate found no fault in him, fault in him addressing them, addressed them again, multitudes, the religious leaders as well. But they kept on calling out, saying, Crucify, crucify him. And he said to them the third time, Why? What evil has this man done? I have found in him no guilt demanding death. I will therefore punish him and release him. But they were insistent and with loud voices, asking that he be crucified. And their voices began to prevail, and Pilate pronounced a sentence that their demand should be granted. And he released the man they were asking for, who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, but he, was de but he delivered Jesus to their will. And when they led him away, they laid hold of Simon of Cyrene, coming in from the country and placed on him the cross to carry behind Jesus. And there were following him a great multitude of people and of women who were mourning and lamenting him. But Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, stop weeping for me, but weep for yourself and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things in the green tree, what will happen in the dry? And two others also who were criminals were being led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and the other on the left. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. It says, and they, cast, and they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. And the people stood looking on, and even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, as this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Now there was also an inscription above him, this is the king of the Jews. And one of the criminals who hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the, answer, but the other answered and rebuking him said, Do you not even fear God, since you are in the same sentence of condemnation? Says, but, but as he went on, he said, And we indeed justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. 
And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. There are seven things that we observe from this particular account and some of the others that we'll look at. And the first one is this, is that we notice, first of all, that Simon carried his cross. In verse 26, we we see that we're introduced to a gentleman by the name of Simon of Cyrena. We're immediately introduced to a man by the name of Simon who traveled about 800 miles approximately from his home, which was in North Africa, which today is in modern Libya. Uh, He traveled to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And it also tells us that as Jesus was going out with the other criminals to be crucified, Simon was on his way into the city of Jerusalem. So they were passing one another. As Simon was coming in, having stayed out in the countryside uh, during this time of Passover, you know, two to three million people would be in Jerusalem at that time. There wasn't enough housing. There wasn't enough uh, places to, 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 uh, to house people for the evening. They would stay out in the country. They would come in. And so it was very common on this particular road for those who were coming in to celebrate Passover, to pass those who are going out to be condemned or executed for their crimes. And this is the scene that we see. Simon's on his way in, Jesus and the other criminals on their way out, and they grab hold of Simon at this particular time to help bear the load of the cross as Jesus goes out to be crucified. The question that we have as we go through this, why Simon, of all the multitudes who were undoubtedly following Jesus at that moment, you know, why him? If you think about it, there were those who were following Jesus, who who didn't desert him. The women that were there and others who were there did not desert him. The disciples did, but there were many others. Why Simon? And it's always exciting to me to recognize and understand that, you know what, that that God always has a purpose and reason for everything that he does. You know, there's a purpose behind everything. Our God is a God of purpose and order. He's not a God of chaos and confusion. Everything that happens in life, as we'll see from this account, and in our own lives, happens for a God-ordained purpose or reason. I like to call them divine appointments. Divine appointments, everything that happens, happens for a purpose. We need to recognize and understand the purpose. Some of us miss it. Others see it very clearly. Nothing in Scripture is a mere coincidence. You know, it was part of the, the, the prisoner's humiliation that he carry his own cross or the crossbeam more accurately. Uh, the, the crossbeam was the one that the actual wrists are, are nailed to. And it was part of the humiliation of a prisoner to carry his own crossbeam to the place of execution. So when, Pilate, when Jesus left Pilate's hall, he was carrying the crossbeam. And apparently Jesus was unable to go on. He continued to fall under the weight, not because he couldn't carry it. It was about 100 pounds and in the prime of his life and as a carpenter uh, we know that Jesus was in excellent physical condition but what he had endured that night before leading up to the crucifixion is what concerned the the soldiers who were escorting him and they were concerned that you know he wouldn't be able to make it to the point where he would be crucified they didn't understand that that was God's plan and they didn't understand that they were fulfilling God's plan in the action that they took when they enlisted or drafted Simon out of the crowd to carry the crossbeam. If you read through the gospel accounts, you'll notice that Jesus had been up all night. He was beaten beyond recognition by the guards. He was crowned with a crown of thorns. He was sent back and forth from Herod to Pilate. And then he was scourged. It's important to recognize and understand how difficult an evening that Jesus endured. The Bible says that he despised the shame and the humiliation And he endured the pain for the joy that was set before him. 
Scourging was done with what was called a flagellum, which was a whip consisting of thongs that were plated with pieces of bone and lead. Eusebius tells of martyrs who were, quote, torn by scourges down to deep-seated veins and arteries so that the hidden contents of the recesses of their bodies, their entrails and organs were even exposed to sight. Josephus describes this in similar terms. The flagellum left Jesus with bone and cartilage showing through his back as he endured the pain and despised the shame. You know, the presence of crosses and crucifixes everywhere around us has served, I believe, to desensitize us to the appalling horror of the cross. You know, often in our busy day-to-day lives, we pass depictions of the crucifixion with barely a notice. You know, and I wonder if we would see a painting or a sculpture of a crucified dog or a cat, how we would respond. And, I, and I, you know, when I say this, not to question our devotion because we're not shocked by the cross, but rather to cite uh, the numbing effect of continual exposure to what I would consider obscene horror. You know, we lose sight of the price that Jesus paid so that you and I who trust in him could be freed from sin and the penalty thereof. The March 21st, 1986 issue of the Journal of the American Medical Association recreated the horror with the most exhaustive medical review of Christ's crucifixion ever published in a medical journal, complete with every anatomical illustration. The authors detailed the pain of the flagellum, as I just mentioned, that tore into Christ's skeletal muscles and the pain produced by the weight of the body hanging from spikes that penetrated the medial nerves and tore at the tarsals, the gruesome respiratory agony, the cramping, the ensuing pleural effusions, and concluded that death by crucifixion in every sense of the word was excruciating literally out of the cross. I was asked recently by one who asked the question why our Easter invitation had a picture of Jesus on the cross because don't we believe that he came down and rose from the dead? And the obvious answer is, of course we do. But the reason that it's there and the reason that this is there is because I think it's important for us not to become so desensitized by the price that was paid that we minimize the agony that Jesus endured for our sake. I don't want to dwell on it, but I think there's a point where we need to stop and consider the price that Jesus paid. I often challenge men as I meet with them to consider, as Sylvia sang this morning, to consider simply this. Could you as a believer in Jesus Christ choose to sin before God at the foot of the cross? Would you talk to one another as sometimes we do at the foot of the cross? Would you commit acts of sexual immorality as occurs in our culture at the foot of the cross? Would you cheat on your husband or wife at the foot of the cross? Would you lie, cheat, or steal as sometimes Christians choose to do at the foot of the cross? I try to put myself at the foot of the cross when I'm tempted to do that which is wrong before God and remind myself of the price that Jesus paid so that I would no longer be in bondage to sin. Jesus died to set us free and he rose again and we'll celebrate that, but today is a day that we're gonna focus on the price that was paid. Simon thought this was the worst day of his life. 
you know, he thought it was the worst day of his life. And we asked the question, why was Simon enlisted or drafted to carry the cross beam? And I believe it was very simple because the cross was a sign of guilt and Jesus wasn't guilty. He wasn't guilty. So God in his sovereignty chose a man to come and to carry the cross beam because Jesus was innocent of all charges. In him, I find no fault. In him, there is no guilt. I don't understand why you people want to kill him. I can't find anything wrong that I can do that. In him, there's no fault. Jesus Christ was innocent of all charges. And so God chose Simon to carry the crossbeam because Simon represents you and me, and we're all guilty. We're all guilty. Simon was chosen to represent humanity because all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. None of us are righteous, no, not one, and each one of us have gone astray, and we've all turned from God and gone our own way. And the cross beam represented by Simon carrying it represents you and I. See, he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. Thousands of Jews came to Jerusalem to celebrate the Jewish feast, and Simon was one of them. He traveled 800 miles to celebrate Passover, and now he was being humiliated on a most holy day. What would he tell his family when he got home? Would he even tell them anything about what he went through? What looked to Simon to be an unbelievably embarrassing situation turned out to be a wonderful opportunity because it brought him into contact with Jesus Christ. Man, I'll tell you what, I get so excited when I read this because I can relate to that. I can look back on my life and begin to see times of my life where they were the most embarrassing situations. They were the most awkward situations. They were most painful situations. They were most troublesome circumstances and events of my life. And how, if I had a choice, I wouldn't have chosen any of them. But I praise God for them because it was through them that God brought me into contact with Jesus Christ. This guy was embarrassed. He couldn't believe it. It's like, can you imagine the thousands of people and he's looking around going, why me? Holy smokes, look at me. I'm not even that big. Pick this big guy. And it's like, no, because God chose him to expose him to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Before Simon met Jesus, he had religion and devotion. He had come to Jerusalem to sacrifice a lamb for his sins, but instead he met the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Mark identified Simon as the father of Alexander and Rufus, two men who were familiar to his readers. A Christian named Rufus was greeted by Paul in Romans 16, 13, and apparently Simon and his two sons became well-known Christians who were held in high honor in the early church. See, you know what Simon told his family when he got back home? He said, I came to know the Savior. I met Messiah face to face. I trusted in his death on the cross and the power of his resurrection. 
And for those 800 miles that he had to travel, and I don't know how quickly it was, estimates are between 30 to 40 days it would take to travel those distances at the time. For 30 to 40 days he traveled just taking it all in, everything he had been a part of, how he had come to faith in the Savior, and he couldn't wait to get home and introduce Jesus to his family. We know from early church history that they became believers in Jesus Christ. Because of the most embarrassing, humiliating, awful circumstances in the world, Simon came to know Jesus as a Savior. I will challenge you to consider, was it not under such circumstances that you, if you have trusted in Christ, came to know Him as Savior? Is it not under such circumstances that you may even be here today or listening to this because someone cared about you to give you this tape because it's under such circumstances that you are broken and that you are humble and you are discouraged and you are just despondent and you are reaching out, seeking answers to life? What is life all about? I'm going through difficulties in my marriage. We're going through a difficult time with a child. I'm going through a difficult time at my business. We're having financial difficulties. We're going through a difficult time as a nation. We're going through a difficult time in world history. God, what is it that you have for me? Where are we going? If this happened to me today, if I died today, I have no answers. I have no hope. I have no assurance. I have no confidence. Man, and you know what? And I need answers. What's the answer? Jesus and him crucified. See, there are no accidents or what ifs. God is in control and Simon in his humiliation like Zacchaeus before him discovered the mercy of God. And the reason is simple. The sacrifices of God are a broken heart. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Psalm 51, 7. God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. You know, if you contrast the humility of Simon and Zacchaeus and the blind beggar to the pride of the rich young ruler and Pilate and Herod and the religious leaders, you see, obviously, that humility always precedes salvation. God is using your circumstances and mind to break our pride so that we turn to him and recognize humbly our need for forgiveness. God is opposed to the proud. These religious leaders would not come into a relationship with Christ because they were proud men who refused to look at the evidence that Jesus was and is who he claims to be, the Savior of the world. They didn't want to see that. They didn't want to know that because it was going to usurp their position of authority and their responsibility, as all God's people responsibilities are, is to, you know what, it's not about me, it's about Jesus. This isn't about me, it's about him. Consider the Bible says Jesus. Take a good hard look at his life and at the evidence that he has laid out that he is the savior of the world. Look at the ones who couldn't walk that now walk. Look at the ones who couldn't see that now see. Look at the ones who cannot hear that now hear every praise of God from the lips of those around them. Look at the one who was dead and the ones who were dead and see them come back to life. Look at the evidence that's overwhelming that Jesus is the savior of the world. They didn't want to see that. They didn't want to know that. They want to stick their head back in the sand and pretend none of this was happening. But you know what? That's pride. And God's opposed to the proud. But he gives grace to the humble. 
You know, one last thing, the act of carrying the cross of Jesus graphically illustrates in the life of Simon that Christ's challenge to take up your cross daily, denying yourself and following him, might never be forgotten. You know, that act is a one-way trip. It's like saying goodbye to one's life and beginning another. If we're any man's in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things pass away. All things become new. There's a cost to follow Jesus. And unfortunately, many don't understand that. The gospel is presented, and it's not the gospel as all as something's missing in your life, you ought to go to church. Something's missing, why don't you come to a Bible study? Something's missing in your life, why don't you give up this, that, or the other thing, and then you'll have fulfillment and satisfaction. No, the one thing that's missing in the heart of every human being is forgiveness from God. That's what's missing in the heart of man, and that's what man needs more than anything else, and that's why we're here to tell people about Jesus, him crucified and raised from the dead. It's not about adding something else to your life, it's about him becoming your life. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by my faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me is exactly what the Apostle Paul wrote to the Galatians. You know, it's no longer me. It's Christ who lives within me. If there's anything good that anybody sees, it's Jesus living within me and demonstrating his love for those around us. See, discipleship, the cross symbolized dying to self and becoming alive to God. The cross symbolized dying to your own desires and becoming alive to the will of God. The cross was a death sentence that would lead to new life. And the image is sobering, I understand that, because if we don't feel the weight of the cross, if there's no sacrifice, if there's no moments of humiliation, then you and I are not following Jesus Christ. There is a price to pay. Jesus said that the price may be your relationship and your own families. Some of you know that. Jesus said the price that we pay may be the fact that you lose your job because you don't conform to the image of this world. And that may be the case. But you know what? He said greater he, greater he who is within us than he who is in the world. Stop living to please people, but live to please him. After all, look what he's done for us. Simon carried the cross because he was, like us, guilty, all have sinned, and yet Jesus would take his place in ours. Number two, we see in verses 37 uh, through, 27 through 31, we see that the women cried over what was happening to him. You know, the women, there was following him a great multitude of pe people, we're told, and the women were mourning and lamenting him. This group of women uh, that were following him, it was a word that's used to describe a funeral service. They knew and understood and recognized that Jesus was going to the cross and he wasn't coming back alive. That he will be crucified, he will die on the cross. This was a funeral procession. It was an execution. It was as if we were saying, you know, there's a dead man walking. And it's inevitable what's going to take place at the end of this road. And these women recognized that there was no turning back from the cross. It was a one-way ticket. No one ever survived crucifixion. It was important to understand that his death was certain. They mourned, they wailed, they lamented. The book of Lamentations is about the weeping prophet, Jeremiah, who wept over the people of Israel because God warned them of impending judgment if they didn't repent of their sin. What is so amazing is that Jesus, in the midst of his suffering, used the moment to teach these women and us an important lesson. 
While they were weeping over the injustice of his death, Jesus was looking ahead and grieving over the terrible destruction of the entire nation that a judgment that was coming was wholly justified. And that's why he says, but in verse 28, hey, don't weep for me. Daughters of Jerusalem, stop weeping for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. And in 70 AD, under Titus, the, the, the city of Jerusalem was destroyed. The temple was destroyed. There wasn't one t- stone left on top of the other. As we see on our TVs and we see uh, depictions or captions of the war that's taken place in Iraq, we see where bombs are hit and you see buildings where they're leveled to some degree, but there's still some remnant of those that are still standing in in 70 AD the Romans came in under Titus and they didn't leave one stone standing upon the other they leveled the city and Jesus prophesying and predicting and saying to them don't weep for me weep for yourselves for a day is coming that there will be judgment for you rejecting me as your savior man and I can't help but think you know what we need to be people who weep and mourn for those who reject Jesus Christ as their Savior. Because the Bible teaches that there's a day that's coming that's Judgment Day. When every person will appear before the judgment seat of Christ, believers for the sake of rewards, praise God, never to be held accountable for sin or answer for sin because Jesus came to take away our sins. Past, present, and future, gone. Hallelujah, that's awesome. But for those who appear before the white throne judgment, the white seat judgment, or the throne of Christ, they will be judged for sin in their life, and every deed will condemn them before God. Jesus said, hey, I haven't come into the world to condemn it. I've come to save it because this world's condemned already. Through Adam, sin entered into the world, and with it came death. And every person born into the world is born at enmity with God, an enemy of God, you know, judged and condemned before God. Praise God, he loves us, and he sent Jesus to die on the cross so that you and I don't have to pay the price for our sin. These women were weeping and mourning for him, and Jesus said, don't mourn for me, mourn for yourselves, because if you don't repent and turn from sin and turn to God, you will be judged for your sin. The city was leveled. And in fact, it was so brutal, historical notes that when the Romans attempted to, to starve the Jews at Masada into submission, hungry men defending their city took food from their starving wives and children and even killed them and ate their own flesh and blood to try to survive. How terrible that judgment was. According to Revelation 6, 12 through 17, a judgment just as horrible is coming in the future when the sixth seal will be broken. It'll be so awful that everyone on earth will ask that the mountains to fall on them. Can you imagine being in so much pain and suffering that you think the only escape is death and God will not allow it? They'll want the mountains to fall on them. They'll want to be crushed to death because of the, the, just the, the, the awesome destruction of the judgment of God. And God will not allow them to find relief even in death. Because there is no relief. I'm always saddened and troubled when I hear somebody saying that, you know, so-and-so died this week or whenever I've got this family member or that family member and they died, but you know what? That they were suffering from cancer. They were suffering from Alzheimer's. They were suffering from this or that or some other affliction. And you know what? I'm just glad they're at peace. They're only at peace if they've come to trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and their Savior. They will look for and long for that day when they suffered from cancer in the hospital room and had an opportunity to trust in Christ as their Savior and rejected Him. 
they will look back on that day and say, that was one of my best days compared to being accountable for sin. We need to recognize and understand that we cannot enter into those flippant conversations with people without pointing them to the cross and the reality of Jesus Christ. May God's people never try to comfort somebody with a lie by saying, oh yeah, I'm sure they're at peace. No, we got to ask the question, had they come to trust in Jesus as their Savior? And more importantly than that, have you? Because it's appointed for man to die once and then comes judgment. There's nothing left that we can do or say or pray for that person. But how about you? Have you come through these circumstances in your life, this awful circumstance, have you come to recognize and understand God's great love that he sent Christ to die for you? Have you trusted in him as your savior from sin and the judgment of God? Have you believed in the power of his resurrection? These women were weeping for him and he said, man, you're missing the point. Weep for yourselves. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Number three, we see that we're introduced to two criminals who, in verses 32 and 33, were taken and crucified with him, and two others also who were criminals were being led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left, were introduced to two criminals. And according to Scripture, this fulfills prophecy as well in Isaiah 53, written 700 years before Jesus was crucified on the cross, we're told that he was numbered among the transgressors. And in fact, there's over 30 prophecies that are fulfilled on the day of his crucifixion. In fact, I've got a list of 34 that I came up with that were fulfilled when Jesus was crucified. And the reason that I bring that up is it's so important to recognize the divine origin of the word of God, that this is not the opinions of men, and we can, we can, we can verify that, validate that through statistical observation through science, and that is this. Let me just share with you Eight prophecies, for eight prophecies to have been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Now, you need to recognize and understand there are over 300 prophecies in the Bible and over 270 ramifications of those prophecies that were fulfilled in one person, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. If we took eight of just these 34 that were fulfilled on the day of his crucifixion, the probability of that occurring is 10 to the 17th power of it being fulfilled in the life of one person. That means you take the number one and you tack 17 zeros after that. Now, I don't know, I'm not the greatest mathematician. I've already demonstrated that in past services, but I will say this. But I do understand this illustration that helps me to understand how significant that is. One man said, he put it this way, the American Scientific Affiliation his name is Peter W. Stoner, said if we take 10 to the 17th silver dollars and lay them on the face of Texas, they will cover the entire state two feet deep. Now mark one of these silver dollars and stir the whole mass thoroughly over the state. Blindfold a man and tell him that he can travel as far as he wishes, but he must pick up one silver dollar and say that this is just the right one. What chance would he have of getting the right one? Just the same chance that the prophets would have had of writing just eight prophecies and having them all come true in any one man. From their day to the present time, providing they wrote them in their own wisdom. 
Now, these prophecies were either given by inspiration of God or the prophets just wrote them as they thought they should. In such a case, the prophets had just one chance in 10 to the 17th power of having them come true in any man, but they all came true in Jesus Christ. That's just eight. How deep would the power be of 300? What evidence do we need? See, it's not about evidence. It's about humility of heart. What holds us back is our pride. For years, I saw the evidence. All you've got to do, and we'll talk about evidence next week, the evidence is overwhelming. The existence of the Christian church, meeting on Sundays, you know, the change in people's lives, that I'm standing here today, that you're sitting there today, is evidence that Jesus Christ is alive. The evidence is overwhelming. People aren't interested in evidence. They're interested in living the way they want to live and inventing a God who exists to serve them instead of them existing to serve him. And that's what the problem is. That's it. The evidence is overwhelming. If you're here and you're looking for evidence, it's all around you. Be open to it. Pray that God would humble you, that you can see him and see the evidence. It's overwhelming. But God's opposed to the proud. And if you've come prideful, and if you've come to say, hey, well, I'll prove to you. Hey, human history is filled with people who set out to disprove the resurrection of Jesus Christ, only to get to the point where they dropped on their knees and asked God for forgiveness. Human history, Simon Greenleaf's School of Law was, was started because of a man who legally tried to set out and disprove the resurrection of Jesus Christ. At the end of all of it, he dropped on his knee and said, God, forgive me and have mercy on me that I would ever doubt you. I believe what you say, that Jesus is the Christ. I believe you say that he's the Savior of the world. I believe what you say, that you love me, and he died on the cross for me in my place. I believe that you say that he has risen from the dead, and he is alive today. The evidence is overwhelming, and for me to reject it and not to receive it is just prideful and stupid, and why wouldn't I want somebody else to pay my price if they're willing to do it? See, these two criminals were crucified at a place literally called the skull, and it's doubtful that it was on a hill, and I know we sing songs and we have some things, but realistically, there isn't any hills that are going outside of Jerusalem. It's a flat highway, and they were crucified on the road to Jeru into Jerusalem so that anybody coming into town would think twice about doing anything wrong. Talk about a deterrent for crime. Could you imagine in your own community if we you know, just stuck people out on the corner or this person stole and we just had him out there, you know, like handcuffed to a telephone pole or whatever with the sign, I'm a thief. You know, and you drove a little further, I'm a liar over here. And then you got the I'm a liar, you know, corner. And then you got the, you know, this corner over here. I mean, that's a deterrent to crime. You know, I mean, we hide ours all in prisons and we put them as far away because we don't want prisoners near where we live. And so we hide them and we put them somewhere that we don't even know that they're around. I, I, I'm saying this, you know what? The best deterrent for crime is let's all just take a tour of a prison sometime. I've been there. I've, you know, I've talked to folks who were there. I, I've been there. I wasn't sentenced there. You know, I was voluntary. Some of you are going, oh, I knew it. The, everything they're saying about the guy is true. We're just waiting for it. And I'll tell you what, there isn't a day that I'd come home and I'd just go, God, you know, there but by the grace of God go I. 
And man, I praise God. When I was visiting a kid who was coming out all shackled up in his jumpsuit and they'd walk and he couldn't sit down and I'd try to have him sit down, man, I'll tell you what, I left there praising God, crying all the way and I'll be the first to admit it, man, just broken in my spirit at what I saw him going through. But he deserved the price that he was paying. You know, how tragic it is, you know, that so many of us get hung up on the objects. They become the, the focus of our worship you know, the cross or the crucifix or a shroud or a place rather than the person of Jesus Christ. Consider Jesus. It's all about him and not about these other things. Number four, consider this. The people considered these events, but they responded negatively. In verse 35, they represent everything that we're talking about, people that responded negatively. The people stood by and they were looking on. Even the rulers were sneering at him, saying he saved himself. Let him save himself if this is the Christ of God, the chosen one. And this too fulfills scripture and it fulfills biblical prophecy. In Psalm 22, there were many of the same people. These were many of the same people who said, oh, Hosanna, Hosanna. Hey, you know what? Salvation has come from above. Now they were standing there and they were making fun of him and mocking him and ridiculing him. They had laid out their garments and branches in homage to a king earlier in the week. And yet now they stand by watching and gawking as if they were at some sporting event. And number five, the rulers and the soldiers also criticized him. In verses 35 through 38, we're told the soldiers in verse 36 also mocked him, coming to him, offering him sour wine. Oh, here's the king of the Jews. Here, king, here's your wine. And they mocked him and ridiculed him, and he endured the pain and he despised the shame, the humiliation that went on and the abuse and all the hurling of abuse as if they were tossing stones. They sneered, they jeered, they mocked his name, his identity as as the crowds passed by on the highway. They looked and they mockingly recalled what Jesus had said earlier after destroying the temple how he would raise it again three days but he wasn't talking about the physical temple he was talking about the temple of his body and he would still do that they laughed at how he saved others all the miracles when think of the irony of this look at this you raised lazarus from the dead you opened the eyes of the blind you you helped this person to walk that never walked ears of those who couldn't hear you know you've done all these things and now look at you you can't even help yourself and they mocked him and they ridiculed him And it was a fulfillment of Scripture. And I think of all the people today who still mock him and sneer at him and ridicule him. God, help us and be merciful. I think back in my own life when I mocked and ridiculed and sneered at those who had trusted in Christ as their Savior, who were bold in their proclamation, and I made fun of them. And I ridiculed them. And I told them to sit down and shut up. I don't want to hear anything like that. And I just thank God for his mercy and his long-suffering and his patience that during those days when I mocked and ridiculed him, that he said, Father, forgive this man, for he knows not what he does. Forgive them as they cast lots to divide up his clothes. Not only was Jesus practicing what he had preached, but he was again fulfilling prophecy and making intercession for the transgressions, transgressors according to Isaiah 53. And the point of all of that is this, no matter how hostile you have expressed, no matter what hostility you have expressed towards the Lord in the past, he is ready to forgive you right now if you would just turn to him. God, forgive me. What a foolish man that I've been. 
that I mocked and ridiculed people whose lives were genuinely touched by the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. The evidence is overwhelming and I didn't want to see any of it. He was willing to forgive the nation of Israel, her leaders, the religious leaders, Pilate, Herod, Judas, me, you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Isn't it wonderful that there's no disclaimer? Whosoever except those who mocked or ridiculed Christians in their life. Whosoever except those who used Jesus Christ's name in vain in their life. Whosoever but this or that or the other. There's no disclaimer. Whosoever may come. Whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord will not be disappointed. But you know what? But they didn't turn to him. They didn't respond to his invitation. And in closing, we have two men's lives that have been preserved for us in Scripture that I believe personally represent all of mankind. These two criminals who are hanging at each side of him. Notice in verse 39, one criminal challenged him. And one of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Then save yourself and us. Could you imagine just the depth of human depravity that while a man is hanging on the cross and going to die, that he would still have so much hatred in his heart that he would ridicule and mock another man who is experiencing the same fate? Could you imagine the depth of human depravity? I hear people all the time saying, you know, well, you know what, well, I'll consider all this kind of the 11th hour confession. I'll wait till, you know, right before my death because whatever God has to offer can't be as good as what I want to do in my own life. So I'll wait till then to seek God's forgiveness. All you got to do is listen to transcripts on planes that crash or transcripts or, or you know, 911 transcripts. And I'm telling you right now, I have yet to hear a transcript that says, oh, Lord, forgive me. Everything I've been told in my life is true. I'm a sinner separated from God, and I need to trust in Christ as my Savior. Man, I hear a whole lot of things being bleeped out when they try to share that. Because you know what? Just as we live, so we shall die. If you're living a life rejecting Christ, then you will die rejecting Christ, and you will live in eternity separated from the love of God and suffer forever. I mean, I can't even comprehend that. I wish that I could because I think I'd be a lot, I'd have a lot greater sense of urgency in sharing the gospel with those who don't know the Savior. This man was brutal. He represents all those who refuse to believe in Jesus until he does what they want. These are the folks who believe if God exists, he does so to serve them. If God is their, like, like somehow he's their personal genie or servant who's supposed to jump at the snap of their finger. God, if you really are who you claim to be, the Savior of the world, then save yourself and more importantly, save us. It's all those people who live their life saying, you know what, I won't believe in you until the doubting Thomases of the world. I will not believe that Jesus is the Savior until he does this, 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 and this for me. Who do you think you are? You're a prideful, arrogant, lost person. And you better drop on your knees and seek his forgiveness. Because we are fortunate that we have a God whose mercies are new every morning and who is very patient and long-suffering. 
Stop running from God. Jesus didn't need to prove himself. He had already done that over and over and over again, and it wasn't enough for those who don't want to believe. Jesus didn't need to save himself. He had done nothing wrong. He's not guilty. There's no sin in him. In fact, if Jesus had gotten down from the cross, he wouldn't have been the Savior. Jesus had already proved over and over again that he was a Messiah. And now it was time to do the will of the Father and hang on the cross so that you and I, who believe in him, could be saved from the judgment of God. Praise God. What a foolish man. Even the Son of Man came to, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost, and that includes you and me. I love what we'll close on because there's one criminal who committed his life and future to Jesus Christ. But, in verse 40, but, but the other answered. The passage says, but indicating a strong contrast of position or thought. The other, meaning another of a different kind. They were both criminals. They were both being put to death. They were both robbers. And, 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 and in that culture, what that meant is there probably was robbery by force and even murder. There was robbery. There was force. There was assault. And you know what he says? He says, do you not even fear God since you're under the same condemnation? This guy was taking it all in. He sat through the trial of Jesus and noticed he wasn't guilty. He saw him suffering quietly, and he didn't insult when he was insulted, but continually trusted himself to God, as Peter writes in 1 Peter 2. He didn't yell back at the crowd. He endured the pain. He despised the shame for the joy that was set before him. He suffered in dignity because he knew his purpose so that you and I could be free from sin. But do you not even fear God? For we are guilty and this man has done nothing wrong. The gospel is so simple. The gospel of Jesus Christ points out to you and me how guilty we are and our need for forgiveness. The gospel or good news is that we're guilty of sin. That's not good news. And there's a price to be paid. But the good news is we recognize that we're guilty of sin. And we turn from sin and turn to God and trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sin that he died on the cross in my place and in your place. He rose again from the dead and he gives life today to those who trust in him. Could you imagine this man who was on this cross? It's by God's grace through faith. It's something that we can't even do without God showing us who Jesus is. You and I only recognize Jesus as our Savior because God in his grace and mercy, reveals his true identity to you and me so that we can respond to this grace. By grace, we're saved through faith and not of ourselves. This man who was hanging on the cross looks at Jesus and he says to the other guy on the other side, don't you even recognize God when you see him? What great faith is that? He knows Jesus is dying, he's dying, and he looks at him and he says, don't you even fear God? Folks, we need to have a fear of God. For the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. If people would be afraid to give an account of their life, they would drop on their knees and ask God to forgive them. 
We do not have a fear of God in our culture because we have called God anything and everything but Lord God Almighty. We call Him the big blue dodger in the sky. We call Him all kind of flippant, stupid things. He is the God, the creator of the universe, holy and righteous, who created you and I and gives us our very life, our very breath, and all to Him that we owe. And if we recognize He is going to hold us accountable for sin, we would all be dropping on our knees and asking for forgiveness as quickly as we can. This man is dying on the cross and he looks and says, don't you even recognize God? He had a change of heart, a change of mind about who Jesus was because we're told in the other accounts of the Gospel of Matthew that for the first several hours, this man with the other man ridiculed Jesus. But he saw how Jesus responded to his ridicule. He probably saw the look of love in his eyes as he looked over to him and would plead with him, you need to trust in me for the forgiveness of your sin. And the guy got it because God gave it to him. He trusted in Christ. Don't you fear God? We deserve what we're getting. He's done nothing wrong. And then he turned to him and he said, Jesus, remember me when you establish your kingdom. Don't forget me. And immediately Jesus said to him, today you shall be with me in paradise. The immediacy of being born again instantaneous by the will of God and not by human desires. You and I can't force ourselves into the kingdom of God. You and I can't be born again unless it's from God and from above. You know, the beauty of all of this, and I've had an opportunity to use it, and it's a beautiful passage to use at any time, but you know, bottom line is this. It answers all the other questions that people get hung up on. You know what? This guy wasn't baptized. This guy didn't join a church. This guy didn't read his Bible. This guy didn't give so much money to philanthropic work. No works. No. This guy didn't do any of that. And you know why? Because he died that day. He died that day. It's by grace we're saved through faith and not of ourselves. It's a gift from God so none of us can ever boast. That's a beautiful passage. I had a guy that I sat in his, in his room and he was dying of cancer and he said, Chuck, let me ask you something. Does God care what church a person goes to? And I read him this passage and I asked him this question, what church did that guy go to? Now, obviously, the Word of God teaches that you want to be in a Bible-teaching church. You want to be in a place where you're going to grow in your faith. You want to be in a place that teaches sound biblical truth and doctrine. You want to do those things. You want to be baptized as a profession outwardly of your faith in Jesus Christ. You want to do the things that God instructs us to do in the Word of God. But salvation is none of those things. Salvation is having a change of heart and a change of mind. This guy didn't believe that Jesus was the Savior. He had a change of heart and a change of mind. As he hung there, he began to realize, yes, he is. And I trust in you. I'm guilty. I own up to it. I recognize it. But I throw myself upon your mercy. Jesus, please forgive me and remember me when you establish your kingdom. And Jesus said, brother, today you'll be with me in paradise. How incredibly wonderful is that promise? How about you? If you died today, what would happen to you? Would you be with them? Because we're confident of this very thing according to the word of God that those who are in Christ, 
the day that we're absent from our body, that we'll be present with the Lord. We're confident because the promises of God are that Jesus said, I go and prepare a place for you. If it wasn't so, I wouldn't tell you that, but where I go and prepare a place for you, I'm gonna come again and I'm gonna receive you unto myself so that there you will always be. Is that where you will be? See, he believed in Jesus Christ and in him alone for the forgiveness of his sins. On May 21st, 1946, the place was Los Alamos. A young and daring scientist was carrying out a necessary experiment in preparation for the atomic test to be conducted in the waters of the South Pacific Atoll at Bikini. He had successfully performed such an experiment many times before and in his effort to determine the amount of U-235 necessary for a chain reaction, scientists call it critical mass. He would push two hemispheres of uranium together Then just as the mass became critical, he would push them apart with his screwdriver, thus instantly stopping the chain reaction. But that day, just as the material became critical, he dropped the screwdriver. The hemispheres of uranium came too close together and instantly the room was filled with a dazzling bluish haze. Young Louis Slotin, instead of ducking and thereby possibly saving himself, tore the two hemispheres apart with, the, with his hands and interrupted the chain reaction. By this instant self-forgetful daring, he saved the lives of the seven other persons who were in the room. And as he waited for the car that was to take him to the hospital, he said quietly to his companion, you'll come through this all right, but I haven't the faintest chance myself. And it was only too true For nine days later, he died in utter agony. Almost 2,000 years ago, the son of the living God walked directly into sin's most concentrated radiation and he allowed himself to be touched by its curse and let it take his life. But by that act, he broke the chain reaction and he broke the power of sin. He laid down his life so that you and I who trust in him will live. Have you trusted him? Let's pray. Father, we're just in awe of this great love. How great a love is this that a man would lay down his life for his friend? How great a love is this that a father would give his only begotten son so that those who would trust in him would not perish but have everlasting life? God, we're just in awe of such great love. God, help us never to forget the agony of the cross and the price that was paid to free us from the bondage of sin, the price that was paid on our behalf of those who believe, sufficient for all, but only efficient for those who have trusted in him. God, may we be like the thief who had a change of heart and change of mind and attitude about who Jesus is, that he recognized his sinfulness, that he deserved what he was getting, but he threw himself upon the mercy of Christ upon the cross. He recognized that Jesus was God in human flesh, that he had the power to give life and that he would establish his kingdom and his kingdom would have no end. We thank you for the words of our Savior who said to him, this day you shall be with me in paradise for his profession of faith. God, I pray for those who are here and not sure that they would come into that intimate personal knowledge of who you are by recognizing their sinfulness, that they're guilty, their need of forgiveness and your mercy that they would throw themselves at the foot of the cross and cry out to you, Lord, save me, for I am a sinner. Trusting in Christ, his death on the cross and the power of his resurrection, we're told that those who believe upon him shall be saved. Lord, we thank you, we love you, we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.
and 